0: My football playing days don't feel like they were that long ago. They were 20 years ago. And so my memories get a little fuzzy, probably a lot of hits to the head. But um, there's something I remember very distinctly. You know, when I was, when I was at Mississippi State, we, we were on quite a run. And I mean that in the worst possible way. <laughs> we, we won 11 games in four years that I was there, 11 total, 11 total. And so the bar of expectation was very, very low. And um, one day, this was in 2004, we were hosting the nationally ranked Florida Gators, and the talk all week was not, can we win, but just how bad is it going to get? That that was the the question going into the game. We come out of the tunnels, an 11 a.m. kickoff, one of the early games, we come out of the tunnel, and the stadium is maybe a third full. Most of the fans had already given up on the season at this point. But we come out, and we actually were playing well, and we're looking around. It was a weird feeling. We're actually playing well. We were winning. We go into halftime. We're up 17 to 14, and the craziest thing happens. We come out of the the locker room for the second half, and now the stadium is about two-thirds full. People saw that we were winning, and they started coming in to see it for themselves. Nobody could believe it. (laughs) By the end of the game, the place was rocking. I mean, the place was just about... Full, we won, we we very dramatically, the last minute scored a touchdown, we won 38 to 31. Everybody rushed the field, tore down the goalpost. It was an awesome, it was an awesome experience. See, and it was funny to me because on on almost every other occasion it worked the opposite way. People showed up at the beginning, but then they left by halftime once it became clear that the outcome, you know, was not in doubt. They gave up over the course of the game, but this kind of worked in reverse. Nobody believed in us until we showed a spark, and then as the day wore on, the crowd got bigger. Everybody wanted to see this for themselves as to whether we could actually pull it off. Now, you'll have to forgive me the very weak analogy, but the way the the resurrection of Jesus works, Easter Sunday, the first Easter, it kind of worked like this. What happened on Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross, the disciples, all of their hopes and dreams were crushed were absolutely put to death with him. Whoever these disciples thought Jesus was, clearly they were wrong. And his death was the evidence of it. And so everybody was absolutely destroyed on Good Friday. The show apparently was now over. Everything they'd given their lives to had come to nothing. Some of the disciples had already packed up and gone home and left Jerusalem altogether. Others of the disciples hunkered down and went into hiding, for fear of being persecuted themselves. Things were not good that first weekend. Well, we saw this, though, last week on Easter Sunday, because nobody expected a resurrection. They assumed that things had come to a tragic end. Until we witnessed the shock of Mary Magdalene. We saw this last week. She's the first person to encounter the risen Lord. And she runs back to the rest of the disciples, per Jesus's command, go and tell my brethren What you've seen, she saw the Lord, she tells them, and he spoke to her. But even even that, even her own testimony apparently didn't really move the needle much for these disciples. They didn't raise up out of the house and run to the tomb. They stayed where they were, cowering behind locked doors. And that's where we find ourselves now in the second half of this chapter. It's still Easter Sunday, but things are still uh, quite dark as far as the disciples are concerned. That's going to change pretty quickly, though. Look with me at John 20, verse 19. John tells us, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. You know, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a miracle, of course. But we need to recognize that just like every other miracle Jesus performed, it's very real and tangible. It's not a spiritual idea we're witnessing here. It's a real thing that happened in the real world. All of his miracles were just like this. And so John gives us this wonderful picture of the risen Christ, That on the one hand, quite miraculously, Jesus just shows up in the room. The doors are shut. They're locked. Jesus doesn't knock. He doesn't enter in through the door. He's just there suddenly. That's a miracle. And yet at the very same time, he's touchable. They can lay hold of him. They can put their fingers in the nail marks if they want to. He's, he has a real physical body. The crucifixion scars are still intact. And so when we think of Jesus' resurrection, at the same time, we say, no, he's not a hovering spirit. And some other you know churches and church traditions will teach that really resurrection is just a spiritual idea. No. He's not a spirit. He's a real person. He's really come back from the dead. And at the same time, of course, we don't discount the miraculous. He's not just a man who somehow revived and escaped death. He is the risen Lord, both miraculous and very real and tangible. And he comes to his disciples. You see the first thing he says to them, peace be with you. Now, there's a lot Jesus could have said right here in his first risen encounter with his disciples. And if, if, you know, if you have a passive-aggressive streak about you, you'll, you'll understand when I say that Jesus very well could have walked into the room and started off by saying, shame on you. And it would not have been out of bounds for him to say it. You abandoned me in the garden when they arrested me. You did not come forward to argue my case when all the false testimony was being thrown at me on trial. You weren't there at the tomb This morning, even though I told you I was going to rise again, you weren't there waiting for me to rise. Even now, you're locked up hiding out for fear of being associated with me. Shame on you. See, those aren't wild accusations. That's all true. And yet, the risen Christ comes to these fearful and dispirited men with the all-embracing gift of his peace. He does not bring shame upon them. He brings peace to them. This word peace, this is the Hebrew word shalom. I want to show us, this is a quote from a man named D.A. Carson. I find a lot of of, um, strength in this this word shalom. He says, Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. Jesus is not just giving them a standard greeting. He is bringing them the new peace that comes from his resurrection glory. And y'all, this is something Jesus promised them before he died, long before the events of the cross. Jesus told the disciples, he said, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace I give. He also promised them this. He says, You have grief now. But you will see me again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And y'all, that's exactly what's happening now in John 20. Peace and joy. What does the presence of the risen Jesus do for these men? It's more than just amazement. It's more than just, wow, miracle. Something's being imparted to them. These, these men go immediately from sorrow to joy, from despair to To hope, from guilt, to grace, from fear, to peace. And these are now lasting realities. These things cannot be taken from them again. And the encouragement for us is that for every person who comes to Jesus Christ and trusts in him, we receive the same gifts. We receive the same joy, the same hope, the same grace and peace. Because he still lives And by his goodness, he imparts these things to us. He does that for all of us who come to him. And so Jesus comes with a message of peace. He comes to the disciples, not to push them away at arm's length, not to tell them, you had your chance and you've lost. I'm going to go find 12 more, more worthy than you. No, he brings them back in and grants them the life that he promised them. But he doesn't just give them hope and peace and joy. He also gives them purpose. There's a God-given mission that Jesus now will send his disciples into. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus says a second time, peace be with you, but not only to you. This is a peace now designed for the world to experience. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. If we read ahead into Acts chapter 1, Jesus makes a promise. He says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. At the end of Matthew, Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is the great commission. As the Father has sent the the Son into the world to save sinners, now the Son sends his disciples into the world to proclaim the message of this salvation, to live now as Jesus' ambassadors, as his representatives in every place God calls us, to every people. It's very interesting here, when we read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't end with resurrection. They end with commission. In every case, they end with Jesus sending the disciples out into the world to take on his mission for the world, to point to him. Y'all, that's why, if you've ever wondered why the disciples are suddenly in the Bible called apostles, That word apostle means sent one. They're no longer just the learners following Jesus. They are now those who are sent by Jesus into the darkness to proclaim the light of his grace. And if you'll notice this in verse 22, Jesus doesn't send them out on their own without any help. Verse 22, and as he said this, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I've always been pretty thoroughly confused by this little paragraph right here. There's a lot to be confused about, okay? First, why does Jesus breathe on them? We don't see that in any of the other Gospels. That's, that's unique to John. What's he breathing on them for? Um, now, this is obviously it's symbolic. Uh, think about, go, go way back with me to Genesis When God creates man in the garden, when God creates Adam from the dust, God breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. Uh, Later on in the the prophets, there's a prophet named Ezekiel. He finds himself one day in a valley filled with skeletons, dry bones. Y'all know this from Sunday school. And God asks Ezekiel, can these dry bones live again? And Ezekiel says, God, you know. And, And then Ezekiel watches as the, as the joints start to fit together and his flesh covers the bone and eventually the breath of life fills these bones and they become human and alive all over again. Y'all, the, the symbolism here of Jesus' breath is that there is a newness of life, not just for him in his own resurrection, but now for all who know him and trust in him. And that life is ushered in by the Holy Spirit. So often we think of the Holy Spirit as the breath of God. It's the same Greek word pneuma, for breath is spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who gives life. We see that back in John chapter 6. And it's the Spirit who will empower these apostles to go out and fulfill the mission that Jesus gives them. They're not just encouraged and empowered men. They are men now filled with the Spirit, men and women like us now given the Holy Spirit to go and live the mission that Jesus has called us to. And so what's happening here in John 20, I think, is kind of a precursor to the ultimate gift of the Spirit, the pouring out that we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, where the Spirit descends upon them as if by tongues of fire, and they begin to speak the gospel, and people are saved. Okay? But we see something else that's confusing. We won't pass this over. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Y'all, that doesn't mean that human beings have the power or the authority to actually forgive sins. God alone can forgive sins. But this is a statement of authority and apostleship. As those sent by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, they're going to go out and begin sharing the gospel of his grace, which is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, And then as people receive the message of the gospel and trust in Christ, it's the church who will affirm, your sins have been forgiven. And of course, if people reject that gospel message, the church will also affirm, your sins remain. You are not forgiven. You're only forgiven by faith in Jesus. So this is not the church doing the forgiving. This is simply ratifying what's being done in heaven. Maybe it helps to think of it like this. Okay, I'm a pastor. If you come to me, the pastor, with, with confession, that's, that's a fine thing to do. You come, you've got sin, you want to confess, you come talk to me. Fine. But you'd be very off-put, I'm sure, if at the end of that conversation, I said to you, I forgive you your sins. That Warning signs should be blinking at that point in your mind. Something's not right. Now, again, there are church traditions that practice it that way that the pastor or priest uh, forgives, in a sense, or offers that forgiveness. We don't do that here. No, what I would do in that case is I would simply point you to Jesus and the finished work of Christ on the cross, because Jesus alone has the ability and the grace to actually forgive your sins. And then you receiving that grace, confessing, repenting, turning to Jesus in faith, now I get to do my part. I will gladly affirm, yes, your sins are forgiven. Not because I did anything, but because you turned to Christ, the one who forgives. And y'all, this is a joy. This is not a pastor's privilege, by the way. This is a joy for any Christian that we get to participate in as Jesus' church, that as we have received the grace of Jesus for ourselves, we now get to share the grace of God with others and celebrate those who receive it. Y'all, if you want to know what God's will is for your life, that's a very fair question to ask. A lot of us wonder that perhaps at times. I'll tell you this. God's will for your life does not begin with the question of career or spouse or family or where you, where you live or any other such temporary and secondary issue. God's will for your life begins with God. And God's will for us From the very mouth of Jesus Christ, as the Father sent me, so I send you. We get to know Jesus and make him known in every place. We live for his glory by sharing his grace, both in word and in deed. We're his ambassadors. That's God's will for our lives. Everything else is wonderfully secondary to that. And for that, we should be grateful. We get to represent Christ in this world. So everything to this point in John 20 has taken place on Easter Sunday. This is still Easter here. Jesus comes to the disciples, he embraces them, and he sends them out. He gives them their commission. But there's a problem with what we've just read. Somebody's missing from the narrative here. We're missing one of the disciples. He's not in the room. Look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, named Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, we can be pretty hard on Thomas. Poor Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. What a name to have to live down, right? But I I think any of us, especially the you know the more kind of practical, rational thinkers, I don't know if that left brain, right brain, whatever you are, whatever one it is, I can understand Thomas's thought here. I want to see him. I don't want to take your word for it. I want to see him. I want to touch him. I won't believe until I've seen him for myself. Any of us might have the same perspective. And he gets his wish. Look at verse 26. After eight days. Jesus' disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. He wasn't going to miss this Sunday, right? Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Once again, Jesus comes with words of peace. And just as it was with the other disciples last weekend, he doesn't say to Thomas, shame on you. Where were you? Where were you last Sunday when I first appeared? No, Jesus brings him in. He invites him to touch him, touch and see. And for us, this this should be a great reminder for us what the heart of God actually looks like, not just for Thomas and the disciples, but for you and me. You may be a Christian, and yet you cannot shake the feeling that somehow, someway, God is always displeased with me. He's never happy with me. That God remains cold and distant. He's close to other people, but not to me. Because of all of my sins and failures and dysfunctions, God's, God has grown weary of me. And at best, he puts up with me. Maybe he loves me, but only because he has to. He takes no delight in me. Most of us have at least thought those thoughts, if not outright lived in that way of thinking. But y'all, just take a look at Thomas. Think about Thomas. Thomas, at one point, when Jesus said, I'm going back to Judea, when Lazarus had died, he was going to go back to the very place where everybody wanted to kill him. Thomas was the only disciple in that moment who said, well, let's go die with him. Thomas was ready to lay it down for Jesus. But then when Jesus was betrayed in the garden, when the Roman cohort showed up with their swords and clubs and torches, Thomas, along with the rest of the disciples, ran. He did not lay it down for Jesus when the opportunity came. Thomas wasn't there with the rest of the disciples On Easter Sunday, even though they were there in fear, licking their wounds, Thomas wasn't there. Who knows where he was? We don't get any indication that when Jesus was at the cross, that Thomas was there either. We know John was. We're not sure about everybody else. We don't know where Thomas was. What's Jesus going to do with Thomas in that case? He comes to him with peace, with mercy, and with grace. And he brings him in close, close enough to touch him, and see and believe. That's what Jesus does with Doubting Thomas. Y'all, God is not cold toward his children. The Lord is not looking to trade you in for someone more worthy, more put together than you. God is patient, and he is merciful, and he delights to draw us near. If you feel far away, if you feel wayward, If you feel like a disappointment, right? Well, you're in a long line of us. We're all that way to some degree or another. But as far as the Lord sees you, if you are his child, you are his child indeed. And he brings you in with the impartation of peace and life. That's the heart of God. And so when Thomas is embraced and he sees this risen Lord for himself, he touches the nail marks. Can you even imagine... Thomas responds. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed." Thomas makes one of the great confessions in, in all the Bible. This is a wonderful confession of faith. Thomas is thinking, if Jesus really is alive, if it's really him that I'm touching and seeing, then he really is God in the flesh. This, Jesus is not an anointed man. He's not an exalted human being. This is God we're dealing with. Thomas may have needed a little more convincing, but he's come to understand what's really going on here. This is God in the flesh. And Jesus offers him a rebuke. We, we don't bypass this, and it's a general rebuke. But Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And here we, we recognize there's something more than just him and Thomas in view here. Jesus is thinking beyond those who are in the present room. When, when Jesus rose from the dead, we, we recognize this as we read through the early chapters of Acts. Jesus rose on Easter Sunday, and then in his resurrection body, he lived among the us. He lived for 40 days before he ascended to the Father. And during that 40 day period, the Apostle Paul tells us more than 500 people saw him and witnessed and could testify about the resurrection. But for everybody else, for the vast majority of the world then and and certainly now, we don't get to see him in the same way. The good news of the risen Christ is heard, it's not witnessed with the naked eye. And so Jesus wants to impart a blessing upon the great many, you and me included who will not see him, as Thomas did, and yet who still believe. And that's why John finishes this chapter the way he does. As the Holy Spirit breathes these words of Scripture, as the Holy Spirit inspires John to put pen to paper, he's going to tell us why this book exists. Why are we holding it now in our hands these many years later? Here's why. Verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. Which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What an amazing thing for John to write, to just tell us flat out. He knows he's not writing a biography. He's recording a gospel. This is good news that God really has given His Son, sent His Son for the salvation of sinners. And so, y'all, if you if think about how John has written to us, and we have to go back a little ways now to the early chapters of this Gospel, when there was a man named John the Baptist, he had the great big ministry before Jesus really came on the scene. But once Jesus showed His face, John the Baptist began to point to Him and say some crazy stuff. People probably thought He was out of His mind. He said, Behold, The Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. You think that got people's attention? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it got people's attention. Look, John said, God's Lamb, God's Son, the Savior of the world. And John, now, all these many years later, as he records these words, he's telling us that's the reason I'm writing. That in a very real sense, when we gather as Harvest Church every single Sunday, this is why we gather, that we may look, that we may behold the Son of God. Jesus Christ. And seeing Him for all that He is. God become flesh. The light of the world. The the crucified and risen Savior. That we might see Him. And put our trust in Him. That's why this was written That's why we're here. And those who believe in Jesus, those who look to him and trust him, John says, we now have life in his name. We have life in his name. I used to think coming to Jesus was mainly about getting moral instruction. That's why you come to Jesus, so he can tell you what to do and how to live a better life. I used to think that, that going to church was mainly to get a religious tune-up. We come on Sunday so that we can have a better Monday through Saturday, and then you know, Saturdays so we start to go downhill a little bit and got to come back and get another you know, booster. But y'all, we, we, I hope we make no mistake here at Harvest Church. Jesus Christ does not offer you a slightly better life or better instruction merely. Jesus offers new life altogether. That's why he calls it the new birth. You are born again to a living hope, the Apostle Peter said. We are a new creation, according to Paul. We now have life, life in union with Jesus, reconciled to God, filled with his grace and his peace, fully forgiven, indwelled by God's very spirit, eternally secure, entirely new. That's what we're given by the grace of God. And all of it is a gift. All of it is God's free gift to offer us and ours to receive by faith, not by our works. If Jesus offered us better instruction, then it would still, at the end of the day, it would be up to you and me to figure it out, to make it happen. That is not how this works. It's a gift. A grace that's given that we now receive. And so this is... Perhaps the truth for you, right where you sit, it may be that today, for the first time, you behold Jesus. You look to him and believe in him and receive life in his name. Maybe for the first time, I hope so. But it may be for you the thousandth time, the ten-thousandth time, because this is something we do all the time. It's not a one-time decision we make it's every single moment of every day we're encouraged to look to Jesus Christ to trust in him and to receive from him what he alone can give life, peace joy, purpose forgiveness and all the rest and so whether for the first time or the thousandth time this is our God given privilege today right where we sit to look at the living Savior to trust him and to know that because of Him, we are made alive by the power of His resurrection and His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning for us that, Lord, we would, with fresh eyes and wide-open eyes and hearts, behold the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would look to him. Lord, not to simply offer us help to do better. But to be our very life in himself. To give us peace Peace with you, Father. The kind of peace that only a risen Savior can provide. The kind of peace that shows up Easter evening to this group of of failures, to this group that was covered in despair and sorrow and darkness. And to open up his hands to them and to offer them life and peace. He is the very same Savior that we look to right now. Father, I pray that we would see him for all that he is. And Lord, as we, as we continue to celebrate his resurrection, as we continue to enjoy, Lord, the good fruit of Easter, that we will be the kind of people, gladly, sent out. Not those who have received and hold on to what we have, but Lord, those who are who are ready and willing and happy to now uh, share, to make our lives, Lord, a, a living, speaking testimony of the life we've been given. Father, thank you for the joy, truly the joy and privilege of the great, commission you sent your son to save sinners and now you send us to share that message of grace pointing to Jesus Christ and not to ourselves Lord help us this this morning to 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 rest secure in knowing, Lord, that if we have trusted you, then you are most certainly near to us, that you delight in us, that you welcome us in. And Lord, that you, even as you send us back out, you empower us for everything you call us to do. Lord, we have received the Holy Spirit. And now we get to um, live as those who are truly new. We love you we thank you. Father, I pray that we never tire of thanking you for your precious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.